You thought about clapping. That's the, I think it's the thought that counts. James, they meant it. No, I... When that starts, everybody's unsure. It's like, are we, I don't, yeah, are we, no, okay. That's fine. I won't hold it against you. When I, when I first got married, uh, I was working at Starbucks, and my wife was working at a church, and we did not have a whole lot between us. But we did have two cars, and like name only in some ways. I had a hand-me-down Toyota Avalon that was, um, was like fourth generation given to me. Uh, and at one point, someone had backed into it in the parking lot and like, a, made a massive dent. And it's like, ah, oh, man, like, I didn't need any help making this thing look worse. So thanks for that. And my wife had this red Saturn, this like, little two-door, small, tiny Saturn. And it just started to just kind of was dying, you know? Just reached that stage of its life where it's, it's like every time you took it in, it's like, oh, no, of course. Of course it's 10 more things. Of course it is. And at one point, we, we, I don't even know who, but we had spilled milk in the back seat. So, yeah, there was that part. So that was fun. So we needed to get a new car. And uh, the church we were going to had uh, a classifieds. And they, we saw this Mercury Mountaineer. Uh, and it was 500, like just a decent mileage. And it was $500. And we're like, well, that, I mean, that, we should totally call about that. That sounds great. It's like, that's like too good to be true. So like, just definitely follow up. And so we called and we're talking with them and it was actually too good to be true. It was $5,000, which is a whole zero off. I mean, that's like really off. And so we're saying like, sorry, we can't afford that. That's just too much money for us. We appreciate it. Sorry. So we figured, just thought we'd check. So we're like, all right, back to the drawing board. Only we get a call the next day from this family and they said, listen, we would like to sell this to you for... How about $1,500? How about that? Could you do that? And then we do that on the condition. You take some money, you set it aside so that you can do future maintenance on the car. Uh, and we were like, that's incredible. And so we did it. And my wife loved that car. Like it's a, a little bit, I would imagine, emotional for her that I'm bringing this up right now because she loved that car. We drove past a car one time that looked exactly like it. And I promise you, she was like, is that it? And it's probably, it's probably not it. But she loved that car. That family was incredibly kind to us. They didn't have to do that. I mean, we had no expectation that they would do that. They didn't, certainly weren't bound to do that for any reason. But God used this family to care for us in a season when we needed help. And as we continue our series called Promise today about the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2 tells a very similar story. If you were here last week, you heard Jerry talk about Ruth 1. He set up this book. It's this little book in the Old Testament that takes a laser-like focus on one family. And Ruth 1 tells about a family that moved to Moab, a different country, because there was a famine in Israel where they lived. And there, the father of the family died, and his two sons got married, and then they died. And so the mother is left alone with two daughters-in-law, and she decides to go back to her hometown and says, leave, leave me, don't stay because I have nothing and your life doesn't need to end up like this. And one of them does take her up on it and goes back to her family. But the other one, Ruth, does not. Ruth says, no, I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to stick with you. Uh, your God has become my God and, and I'm with you. And so Naomi, who's the mom, and Ruth go back to Bethlehem. And that's where we're picking it up in chapter 2. We see another character introduced to this story. Another person is introduced to us here that's important in the book of Ruth. His name is Boaz. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ruth 2 because we're going to be living in there this morning. 
And Ruth 2 starts out with, there's this wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz. And he was a relative of Naomi's husband, right? So he's a distant relative of Naomi's husband. And Naomi and Ruth are kind of setting up shop in Bethlehem. And Ruth says, why don't I go out and pick up and gather grain and pick up grain from what's kind of left in the fields? Basically saying, we need food. Like we got to do something. Why don't I go do that? And Naomi tells her, yeah, go ahead. And so she's out. She's gathering this grain, and she meanders into the field of Boaz, her, Naomi's husband's distant relative. And Boaz cares for her. Boaz takes an interest in her, and Boaz looks out for her. And so that's what Ruth 2 is about, is Boaz proactively looking to, to care for Ruth, and, and really in some really cool ways that were not expected, giving her rights that she didn't have any any reasonable right to expect, helping to provide for her in ways that she would never have imagined. That's really what Ruth chapter 2 tells us all about. In fact, he provides her in such an incredible way that Naomi is, is blown away when Ruth goes back to talk with her. She can't believe that this has happened. And we're going to look at Boaz this morning. We're going to look at three particular things that Boaz did that are really important. Three things. The first is that Boaz paid attention. Boaz paid attention. All right? In, in verse uh, four, we see Boaz arrive. He was from Bethlehem and he arrives at his fields and he greets his workers. And we see his character because he's greeting his workers, the Lord be with you, and his traditional sort of Israelite greeting. He's a godly man. And then Boaz asks his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And he's really saying, he's like, I, I, don't, I don't recognize her in this smaller community. He's like, I'm, I don't know who she is. You know, who's her family? And the foreman answers her. She's a young woman from Moab who came with Naomi, doesn't use her name, doesn't call her Ruth, says this young woman from Moab. And later she's referred to as a Moabitess, which is what a woman from Moab would have been and is a little bit clunky to say, and I, but they didn't come up with anything else, so she's a Moabitess. Right? Sounds a little weird. Say that, everybody say it to yourself. Moabitess. Yeah, you feel it. Okay. So he's like, so what happened? And, and so the foreman, Boaz's foreman says to him, she asked me this morning if she could come and, and glean, which is a specific way of picking up grain off the ground, or gather, which is sort of harvesting grain behind the harvester. She's been at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest. Now, what's interesting here is this. We don't totally know what he means by this, right? But from some of the language and some of the conversation, it, it feels to me like He's purposefully identifying Ruth as a foreigner. Doesn't use her name. He calls her, she's from Moab. And every time Moab is used or Ruth is from Moab or Ruth the Moabitess, think of it like there's a biting sort of tone to that. It's, 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 it's like the way I'm from Pennsylvania. I don't know what it's like for people from Indiana, but I'm from Pennsylvania. And so that's the way we talk about people from like New Jersey. We'd be like, where are they from? Oh, from New Jersey. I don't know why. It's totally unfair. They had better gas prices than we did. So it's like, I don't know. But that's, you know. So even more severe than that is they're foreigners. It's like, oh, you know, that, that woman from Moab. And he talks about how she's been gathering all day. And I wonder if what he's trying to say to, to Boaz is she's, she's been here gathering. She's asked to, to take grain, to harvest her own grain, which she actually didn't ask for. And she's been here since morning working hard. And I wonder if he's saying she's taken all this stuff. It's this foreigner. She's here. She's taken all this stuff. I mean, she's, she's asking if she can harvest. Like, this is not okay. Like, I, I wonder if that's his tone. But Boaz responds very differently. He responds very differently. He sees Ruth, who's that young woman, and he moves across cultural barriers to engage with her. 
She was the lowest of the low on the social totem pole. The foreigner, below servants was the, was the foreigner, was the people from Moab in particular. And yet he doesn't have the same bias. He doesn't have the same attitude. He engages with her. He talks with her. He goes up and says, hey, listen, gather here, stay here. We can look out for you here. And we'll dive into that a little bit later. He also, in verse 11, talks about what she had done for Naomi. He, he identifies that. He says, in Ruth 2.11, once he realizes who she is, he's like, oh, I know you. I, I, I also know everything about, or everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here amongst complete strangers. He knows her. He sees her. He pays attention to her. Do we see people in need? Do we recognize the needs of others? Why don't we? What gets in the way of that? I think often we have a lot of reasons, and often it starts with time. Right? I don't have any time. I'm too busy. My life is full. I don't, I don't have any margin. Like, I, I can't. I don't have any time. Or maybe we say, I'm just not sure how to. I don't know what to do. And so since I don't know what to do, I'm just going to do nothing because I, I, don't, I don't really know even what step to take. Or maybe we look at it and go, I'm just one person. Like, I can't make a difference. It's not going to matter. Like, why even bother? What, what, I, what I could manage to do is just to drop in the bucket. I'm not going to solve anything. I think oftentimes there's fear involved. When we think about meeting the needs of others, when we think about reaching to others, particularly people that are different from us, fear is involved. What if I get hurt? What if I lose something? What if it costs me something? What if they're different and I don't really know how to engage? What if I, I'm not good enough? What if I, my help is inadequate? Frankly, sometimes it's just plain selfishness. I don't want to. It's my time. It's my money. I just don't want to. That stuff's rooted in a lack of empathy, really, in a lack of love that we don't look at others the way that God looks at others, that we don't look at, at every human being as being created in, in the image of God and having value because of God's imparted value through his, his creation of them. We put people into folders because that protects us, right? Those labels protect us. When we can identify as people being like us, then it's like, this is safe. And when we can label people as different in some way, then we can avoid them. That makes it easier for us. And sometimes our attitude can even be cynical where we say like, well, you've done that to yourself, right? I, I, if you manage your money like I did, then, then you wouldn't be broke. You would, that's your fault. You know, if, if you wouldn't have moved, that's your fault. We, we blame people for situations. And sometimes often people have a role in that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't care. What we're doing when we label people that way is we are giving ourselves reasons that it's okay to ignore it, right? We're building a case in our head and in our heart to go, it's okay for me to pretend like this isn't real. And that results in us sticking our heads in the sands, ignoring what's going on outside of our small circle. Are we seeing the needs of others? Do we recognize their need? When we do, in those moments that we do, we're often quicker to recognize physical need rather than emotional or spiritual need. We can be slow to see emotional need as, as being significant or particularly even spiritual need as being significant. 
But there are people in your life that are lonely, that are in the grips of depression, that are battling with an addiction and have an emotional need. And how do we look to meet those needs? Because what we know is true from our own experience, what we know is true from what Jesus says is that we all have a spiritual need, that we all have an emptiness in our soul that we cannot fill on our own. Do we look to meet others' needs in the spiritual realm? Boaz paid attention. Boaz saw those needs and he moved in that story. He moved to interact because the second thing that Boaz did is Boaz protected. Boaz protected. He protected Ruth when he didn't have to. He stood up for someone who could not stand up for themselves. The foreigner had no rights in this society, in this, sort of in this cultural framework. Ruth was an outsider. But listen to the way that Boaz talks about her, right? When Boaz, when I said Boaz looked out for her, listen to some of the words he says. So stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. He says, let her gather grain among the sheaves without stopping her. Don't give her a hard time. He's looking to protect her. Because the reality is, as a single foreigner, she is exactly the kind of person that bad stuff happened to because she was not valued in that society. But Boaz is looking to care for her. In fact, he says these words to her, which is incredible. After he says, I know what you've done for your mother-in-law. I've heard how you left your father and mother. He says in Ruth 2, verse 12, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. That's a powerful image under whose wings you've come to take refuge. That's, in, that's this picture of a, a little baby bird underneath the, the wings of its protective mother, right? That, that's this tiny little chick that's being defended by her mother. It's like this. Like, take, take, a, take a look. I'm impressed that some people said, oh, I see that and go, I'm a tall human being. And I see that and go, I don't want to mess with that bird. <laughs> because that bird, that look on that bird's face is, no, seriously, try me, seriously. Seriously, try me. That, that's, a protect, that's a powerful creature saying to, the, to, their, to their little chick, stay here where I can protect you. I provide you shelter. You are with me. When I was looking for this picture, I wanted something strong that communicated this powerful image. But then I also ran across this and I felt like I needed to share it because, I mean, look at that face. Look at that face. Even the most hardened person in here is like, oh, that little chick is so cute. Oh my goodness, I can just squeeze it. Oh my goodness. Seriously, that, it's like, oh, adorable. But that's God's attitude towards us, right? That's what Boaz is praying for her, that, that God puts us under his wing, that he protects us, that he shelters us, that he looks out for us. That God is paying attention, that he sees our needs, and that he cares for us that way. Boaz stood up for someone who couldn't stand up for themselves, so the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is, are we standing up for outsiders and for those who are marginalized? Are we standing up for the kind of people God would stand up for? God's heart is for the marginalized and the outsider, and he moves towards them. Are we doing the same? We can disagree with those we stand up for. Standing up for someone doesn't mean standing up for their issues. It means standing up for their humanity as people created in the image of God. How we work through our disagreements is a whole other sermon. And I'm sure we'll get to that. 
But right now, it's this idea, we can stand up for people we disagree with because we're standing up for, for their humanity as people created in the image of God. Are we standing up for people? Are we doing that? When I was in high school, there was a guy in my grade who got made fun of just mercilessly. He was a little funky. He was a little weird at the time, but really he was just him. In the benefit of hindsight, you realize now as an adult, all right, everybody doesn't have to be the same. There's great variety in different flavors of people. But in high school, it's like you're either cool or you're not. And like, that's it. It's that binary. It's, it's hard. And this kid, this kid was just, he was a little funky and he just got picked on nonstop. All the time. And I watched it happen. I was on the fringes. I wasn't actively making fun of him, but I just watched every day. And I can't imagine how miserable it must have been to show up every day to school knowing what was going to happen. To show up every day knowing you'd get bullied and picked on. you get made fun of every day. And several years ago, God really challenged me and speaking to my heart. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like I did nothing. I watched it happen and I did nothing. You know why? Because I was so glad it wasn't me. I did nothing. And I really felt convicted and so I tracked him down and I apologized and just said, dude, I watched this happen and I didn't do anything. And that, I was a coward. And I'm sorry. And he was gracious and he forgave me. But as a follower of Jesus, how in the world could I stand there and not Look, to stand with someone who is, who is on the fringes. Because you know what we all feel? If that was us, we'd want someone to do that for us. We'd want people to, to wade into our life and to be on our team and to care for us and to protect us and to say, I got your back, I'm on your team. How can we not do that for others? How can we not do that? Boaz stepped into this story and protected Ruth when he didn't have to. But he did it anyway. Because that's what God has done for us, that God looks to protect us, that we've not earned it or deserved it. But God is our strong tower. He's our refuge. He's our protector. He's our defender. We can look to him for those things. We can find ourselves secure in those things. Third thing that Boaz did is that Boaz provided. He provided he went above and beyond in his care for Ruth. Now, as I mentioned earlier, gleaning was where you'd come along after the harvest and you'd pick up the, the stuff that was on the ground, the stuff that was left over, right? And we're going to show you what that looks like. You'd go out into this field and your food is what you could find in there, okay? So they're just picking up like stray stalks. But God had provided purposefully for his people. Even in the Old Testament, he wrote... He gave the people these laws to look out for the, the marginalized and the outsider. He says in Leviticus 20, uh, 23, 22, he lays out this idea. He says, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. And he says a similar thing in Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you're harvesting your crops, and forget to bring in a bundle of grain in your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. 
God's plan, God's purpose had been for people to leave margin in their fields, to care for those who had less, that that was built into it. So Ruth was able to go and, and gather food. I mean, that, that was the law of the land. Now, not every landowner honored that, but they were supposed to. But Boaz doesn't just settle for that, right? Boaz doesn't just settle there. He goes far above and beyond that. He's not limited by that. He says to Ruth in verse nine, when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Nowhere does it say that a foreigner had a right to the, to the food, to the supplies uh, of the, the workers. Like nowhere is that right. Boaz chose to say, hey, come, come drink some water if you're thirsty. He also says to her in verse 14, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all that she wanted and she had some left over. And then he says to his people, pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let, them, let her pick them up. And, it, and Boaz goes on to say, you know what? Stay with me for the whole harvest so you can gather more. Boaz vastly exceeded the cultural expectations by saying, I'm gonna provide for you, not the bare minimum, but I'm gonna provide for your needs. And here's what's fascinating. Based on the amount that we see that Ruth took with her, right? If we imagine what she took home that once a day for seven weeks, for the seven weeks of the harvest, then Ruth gathered somewhere between two-thirds of a year's worth and a full year's worth of food for her and Naomi. That's incredible. That's incredible provision. That's Boaz going above and beyond what he, what he was required to do in order to care for someone well. It's important to note here, by the way, that Ruth is an active participant, all right? Ruth's not sitting back and expecting. She's doing stuff, and God is moving through that. Now, it's not the idea that God helps those who help themselves, because sometimes you'll hear people say that, and the bad news is that's not actually in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is all about the opposite, that God regularly, routinely helps people who can't help themselves. Frankly, God can only help people that can't help themselves because it's only when we realize we cannot do it on our own that we can receive what's been done on our behalf. What I find fascinating is that God often answers through providing opportunity for us to trust him and to grow. We would like our needs met, right? I'm sure... My prayer would have been, can a large pallet of food fall directly from heaven onto my front yard? And if you could include some ramen noodles, I would love that because they're good, even though they're terrible for you. But what God provided was, was the opportunity that God is working as the unseen actor in this story behind the scenes to, to orchestrate this, that Ruth wanders into Boaz's field. Why? Because again, God is directing her, that God, Boaz provides above and beyond. Boaz sees her and cares for her. Why does he come back from Bethlehem the day he's there? Because God is orchestrating this meetup. God's hand is at work behind the scenes and all of this stuff to create opportunities for Ruth and for Boaz to trust him and to lean on him and to grow. God is the ultimate source of this provision. And what I love is that sometimes we can think, I can't do it all, so I won't even try, right? And Boaz doesn't ever deal with that. Boaz is, I can't do it all, but what I can do is this. Do what you can for who you can. Do the one thing for the one. Even if you can't do everything for the one or many things for the many. Do the one thing for the one. There's a man in Australia, there was a man in Australia, his name was Don, and he lived across from a cliff 
known as the Gap that was one of the most famous suicide spots in Australia. People would, there was a little fence there because it was famous since the 1800s. People would, would walk in, would stand there and would throw themselves off. And what Don made it his mission to do was to save as many as he could. And so Don would wake up the morning and look out the window and he said, anyone standing too close to the precipice, he would walk over and he would strike up a conversation. And there were even times where he would tackle someone while he waited for the police to come. Because Don said, I can't do everything, but I can do this. And over his lifetime, Don saved 160 people. Or maybe that's too big and that's too dramatic. And you're like, well, I don't live near a cliff, Josh. I live in Indiana. There's no water here and it's super flat. Maybe you didn't notice. <laughs> I, did, I did notice. So how about a group of people from New Jersey? Just a group of friends from New Jersey that said, listen, we got to do something. And so they started what they called the Syrian Supper Club as a way to engage with Syrian refugees. So they, people pay $50 a, a, a night to be part of this and they gather some, some refugee women to cook and make dinner. When I first read that, I thought, man, that seems sort of condescending. And then I realized that they have trouble finding jobs and getting paid. And so they're doing this specifically to provide a way to give them money. And then they eat together. And they get to meet their neighbors and they get to, to learn American culture and they get to engage with people. And it's just people sitting together talking about life and their experiences. What a cool way to say, we, can, we can't do everything, but we can do something. We can do something. Boaz consistently exceeded cultural expectations. He went way above and beyond what he was re required to do. And folks, what I hope you take away this morning is that is what God has done for us. That's what God has done for us. In Ruth 2.10, we see Ruth overwhelmed by the kindness that Boaz shows her, right? And she says this. She falls at his feet and says, what have I done to deserve such kindness? She asked, I am only a foreigner. I don't belong here. I, I don't, I'm not part of your people. Why would you be this, this kind to me? But what's powerful for us is that's not just true of Ruth. That's true of us, that we are all foreigners. That Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, says in Ephesians 2.19, says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, that we are all foreigners at one point to God, but God moves towards us through his son to say, you are part of my family, that you have the rights and privileges of children that we could never earn or deserve on our own. In Ruth 2.14, we see one of the ways that God is using Boaz to meet her needs says she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. That's exactly how God works. That's exactly what, what God has done because we see Jesus do a similar thing in Matthew 14, 20. And talking about feeding the 5,000, it says they all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. They were eight they ate until they were satisfied and there was still some left over. That's how God works. When Jesus says, I've come to bring life and bring it abundantly, he's not saying I've come to give you the bare minimum, but I have come that you might know the richness of the life you have been created to experience and anything other than that is lesser. That's what God wants for us. He has moved towards us that way that we might understand how deeply we are cared for, how deeply 
We are protected and provided for because God sees us and sees what we're going through. As we wrap up here, I want to leave you with a couple questions, some things to think through. I think there's a fundamental question we need to, we need to deal with, and it's, and it's this. What would I want if that was me? What would I want if that was me? When we look at, at our neighbors, or we look at strangers, or we look at people different from us, and when we think about refugees, when we think about those situations, and we, we are initially fearful, the question that must be asked is, what would I want if that was me? How do we put ourselves in their shoes and go, how do I love someone the way that I would want to be loved, the way that I would need to be loved? How do I care for someone the way that I would need to be cared for? Because Boaz could have done the bare minimum, but he, I would imagine, I just got to believe in somewhere, Boaz is going, no, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to serve the Lord because this is what I would want someone to do for me. Because I also, because I know this is what God has already done for me. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Are you looking to see the needs of people around you? Physical, emotional, spiritual needs. Are you looking to see those needs? Are you looking to protect others? Are you looking to stand with others? One of the most discouraging things about the, the allegations about Harvey Weinstein that have come out in the news, and if you're not familiar with it, he's, he's a Hollywood major power player who's, if you don't know, don't know him, you, you definitely know his movies that he's, he's gotten Oscars for. He's been accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment, a pattern that's, that's gone on for decades. The most concerning part is that people knew for years it did nothing. Are we willing to stand with the marginalized? Are we willing to stand with those outside, those on the fringe? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to move towards them the way that God has moved towards us? Lastly, are you looking to provide for others? Are you, are you willing to have it cost you something? Are you willing to help meet the needs that you see? Folks, we show the quality of our faith by the way we reach out to the marginalized. We show the quality of our faith by the way we reach out to the marginalized because God's heart is for the marginalized. And I don't stand up here all preachy and judgy because I'm like, I got this nailed and you guys all are terrible at it. No, these questions hit me because it's incredibly easy to live in our bubble. It's incredibly easy to do that. It's hard to move beyond it. Our first thought is to care for those that we know that are in our circle. It's easier to reach out to someone that we already love. But here, I want to leave you with this. Who's your Ruth? Who's your Ruth? Who's that marginalized person that you need to be intentional with? Is there a group you disagree deeply with? Is there a group that you are strongly against? Is there a group that you feel angry with? I've seen Facebook. I know there is. As followers of Jesus, we aren't allowed to have that kind of attitude. How do we move towards people we disagree with? How do we move towards people who hold opposite views? How do we move towards them? We're to be known by the way that we love. That's a big thing. It's a serious thing. We can't allow labels and minor distinctions to be deal breakers. How can you move 
towards that person in your life or those people in your life? How can you do it? It's easier for us to visualize ourselves reaching out to someone we already love, but imagine what would it look like if Christians lived that way? What would it look like if you lived that way?